0: This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Wanna to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B E. That's IXL.com forward slash B E.
1: Galaxy Sweet Galaxy. So down.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tell Me This, Season 4, Spring 2023. I cannot believe it. I am so excited to be back with Brienne, and we have two wonderful guests. Um, Some of you, I'm sure, have heard from Danielle Scarano. She was... Uh, my co-host, uh, I guess a fall ago, Danielle, where we spoke mm-hmm. to a lot of leaders and Danielle's doing her own podcasting on the Read podcast. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. So check that one out if you haven't. And I'm very excited that Dr. Yes, I'm going to say Dr. Jilly Darevsky is joining us today. Hi, Jilly. How you doing? Hi, good. Thanks. Good. Um, yeah, and so we're going to talk with these experts and really smart uh, women about topics of belonging, community, and all sorts of good stuff. So welcome, everybody, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello, Brianne.
1: Hello, Carrie and <laughs> Julie and
2: Danielle. So we have to, I think,
1: start by saying, how many times have we tried to get this group together? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is like the fifth, maybe, meet it calendar invite that we've sent out, and for a million different reasons you know, we've, we've gotten postponed. So we're super excited to be together here today. And it's appropriate that after all those tries, this is our first, you know, interview of 2023.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> all
3: right.
1: So I'm going to start off by interviewing or uh, introducing Danielle. And I don't know if you need an introduction because we had a whole season's worth, but we'll give the formal bio here. So Danielle Scarano considers herself a connector of science of story. She currently works as a researcher, research and development director at the Winberg Institute and is host of The Read Podcast, where her work centers around supporting the academic and personal lives of children, particularly through improving reading education. She's previously a middle school teacher and began her career in education as a soccer coach. Danielle earned her bachelor's in in political science and international business from Loyola University, Maryland.
4: Shout out! Go Greyhounds!
1: Go Hounds! (laughs) And completed her master of professional studies degree in social studies education and special education at Manhattanville College. She's currently finishing her EDD at Johns Hopkins and will graduate in May.
2: All right, yes. well, welcome, welcome again, uh, Danielle, love it.
4: Thank um, you, thank I'm, you for having me.
2: Yeah, and I get the pleasure of introducing Dr. Jillie Darewski. She is the Executive Head of School of the Siena School Dr. Darewski holds a BA in English literature with psychology from the University of Surrey, a master's in specific learning difficulties from Middlesex University, and a doctorate in education with a specialization in mind, brain, and teaching from Johns Hopkins University. Her doctoral research focused on supporting parents of children with language-based learning differences via an online community of practice. Recognized as an outstanding teacher of dyslexic students, she has dedicated her career to working with students with language-based learning differences. This is why we have these amazing people in our orbit because I don't understand most of what was in either bio with respect to reading. And I think just to give our audience sort of some insight, we are very excited to talk with both of you about belonging and connection connection in this particular context, thinking about neurodiversity and dyslexia and learning differences and just, yeah, I'm just really excited to unpack this. So thanks again for being here. Yeah,
1: and before we get into all those good things, we always like to start with just a check-in question. So the first question is a softball and it's just, how are you? How are you? How are your families? And Danielle,
4: we'll we'll start with you. Wow, Uh, that is, (laughs) it's, you know, I think that it was a softball question prior to the pandemic, and every time I consider this question, like where do I start, Um, I'll keep it short, but I know Carrie and I are very invested in the paradox, so I feel like every day I am living the tension of so much amazing and exciting things in my life and then wrestling with everything else that we're wrestling in in the world. I'll mention ecological systems theory probably a lot during this interview. Um, But, you know, I think where I am in terms of society down to myself, there's a lot going on. I will say, I will tell the universe of the Tell Me This podcast, I just got engaged. So that to me is carrying me through the, this, this next, you know, the beginning of this year and throughout this year. Um, And I'm just really excited to be on with the three of you, Um, Carrie and Brianne, the two two of us say the three of us have spoken a lot about a lot of different um, things that exist in our human experience and have connected the science and story. And Jilly, you and I have had so many conversations and I've learned so much from you. So I would say in the here and now, I'm just grateful to be here with the three of you. Thanks for that, Danielle.
2: Jilly and you, we know you mentioned you're starting to look at colleges. What else is going on in your world these days? Well, I have to
3: say, it's very hard to follow an engagement. I don't think there's much (laughs) that can top that. (laughs) But yeah, no, all is good. I now, birthdays have come and gone. I now have a household full of teenagers, which Mm. is a very different experience. Um, But life is good. It's very busy. um, And it's exciting professionally and personally as life continues to evolve, as Danielle is talking about. Um, And I have to say, it's not on my bow, but I think my most important role is as mum of two kids with dyslexia. And so I think for me, that is, that is what makes life exciting and a continual journal journey. And I'm really glad to be talking about this and being here with you today. Absolutely. So thanks for the invite.
2: Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. I feel like we will learn a lot from the the standpoint of neurodiversity, learning differences, and also having teenagers, because I think there's a, it's a whole world that we're, I can't believe we're just a few years away from there, but um, yeah, so we'll, we'll sort of dig into that as well. So, you know, the question we always ask our, um, you know, guests on the podcast is around just understanding a belonging. So as you think about, you know, your life experiences, having kids with dyslexia, your professional experiences and sort of the reading and education world, particularly, Julie, I'm going to start with you. Like, what is your understanding of that word belonging?
3: I see it means so many different things mm. to each child, particularly in each person that you meet. Um, it's interesting with the diversity of life and so many different people that, um, especially when I think about middle school students and how they really want to belong, they really want to be seen and accepted in a group and recognized and valued as individuals. So I really see belonging as this value that we have for each individual, recognizing differences, appreciating differences, just accepting people for who they are.
2: I'm taking notes. I always take notes while <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> it helps me to remember and jot down things. Do you, I mean, in your sort of professional world and in the research you did, Jilly, I know working with parents, do you see belonging or this quest for belonging show up in particular ways for you know a community of parents, for example, who are sometimes struggling and then celebrating you know their their child's you know learning differences? I'm just curious what you what you experience or see.
3: Yeah, it's a great question. It's with parents, particularly when they're entering this journey, um, there's a lot of concern about whether or not their child is going to be accepted. You know, having language-based learning differences is an invisible disability. It's not something that people are going to see straight away and understand. Mm -hmm. And there's so much stigma within society still, unfortunately. You know, people with language-based learning differences are often labelled as lazy. They're not smart. Um, And it was quite concerning that even in today's world, when I was talking with the parents as part of my research, how alone they felt Mm -hmm. and that they didn't feel that even sometimes in their own families That they belonged once their child had their diagnosis because people didn't really understand what it meant and so that sense of community and feeling like they belonged um, was certainly key i think being in an environment such as my professional world where we only work with students for language-based learning differences but it was quite surprising to find in my doctoral research how alone parents still felt and they talked about that frequently and being able to provide an opportunity for parents to get together, talk about their experiences, talking about how they felt, really developed that sense of belonging within the group, within the mm-hmm. community of practice. And that was really key, where they could see how they were similar to other people, mm-hmm. um, but how also other people really appreciated their experiences, no matter how diverse they were.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting It's in such a, a different way or different aspect of belonging that I don't think we always think about. Cause it's really what I'm hearing you say is the loneliness that a parent felt wasn't just for them. It was for their, what their child is going through. Right. So it's this interesting, I don't know. I think we don't often, we, sh- we should think more about sort of how the family right is affected when this happens to one individual. And I think your research does such a beautiful job of reminding us of that. So um, yeah, I feel like I have lots to, Lots to reflect on. So I'm sure we'll come back to that. So Danielle, I there's a question on the sheet that we gave you. I'm going to tweak it ever so slightly because I feel like you're cheating a little bit because you've been on before and you've had these Mm -hmm. questions before. So what I'm really curious about is where are you now with your understanding of belonging? Like we've talked about belonging so much. I'm wondering where Mm -hmm. are you with your thinking right now with belonging?
4: That's a good question. I think it... Tinkers ever so much every day as you take in new information. Um, I'm not sure if we've talked about this or I've talked about this on the podcast, um, and particularly as I see in my work with students with language based learning disabilities like dyslexia um, and being a sibling of a child with uh, a language based learning disability um, and how we approach them. I mean, there's two things is, is context, context matters. And what I mean by that is when you are thinking about a child in a school, um, no matter what they bring, their strengths, um, their difficulties, their differences, um, how are leaders, teachers setting up the context of their school and their classroom so that every child is celebrated in the way and supported? Um, and And the other piece is actually I'll wait to that other piece is, is, is supported. And so what I come to belonging in this sense is our children. And especially when it comes to reading and dyslexia is our children supported academically and social emotionally. And so with academically, a lot of the work that I do in terms of advocacy is ensuring that they have the access to a high quality instructional program that's going to, what research shows is going to support them in the way that they that they learn, right? And they learn to read. Um, when I think about belonging in the context of reading, I mean, reading is the first academic skill that children often face. And it's the skill that is interwoven into every aspect of their school life. And not even their school life, their personal life and where they are professionally. Um, and so circling back to your question about that one facet of context is that when you're thinking about belonging, you need to have this much more comprehensive picture of how that affects every facet of a child's life um, and of a teacher's life and of everyone who's operating within a school building. Um, the other piece is um, beyond context is that language matters. And it's, Jilly, you talked about it um, in terms of, not, of myths that continue to exist about areas of language-based learning disabilities or just the disabilities at large. Um, and how experiences may be shaped by language, um, and so I'll start with those two things, and I think we could flesh those out and get deeper into it. Um, but those, the context and the language, really do to me and the, how I look at it, how I look at different frameworks, and how I look at research and everyday experiences, connecting science and story, is those two really are o- o- interwoven in the experience of belonging.
3: Mm-hmm. Can I add to something that Danielle said, because I think that's so critical what you were saying about language, Mm -hmm. because we're in the world of learning disabilities, we're setting social interpretations for diagnosis up in a negative way because special education policy is just delved in um, negative language. You know, it's a disorder. It's um, an inability to do something. So to receive a diagnosis and receive the help, Danielle, that you're talking about, that our students really need, they have to be told that something's wrong with them. Mm. That sets them up for this stigma consciousness that exists where they're seeing how people are reacting to them. Mm
2: -hmm. I love that you said that, and our audience might think that that was like a perfect setup, because the question I was going to ask is, in this context, in this setting, and now knowing what you just shared, Jilly, what is the language of belonging for these students? Like what are the, you know, like when we think about the definition of belonging, like what are you saying and messaging, knowing what you just explained to Jilly that it, it ha- it's diagnosed as a problem? Like what's the language of belonging for these families and kids? And I'm just curious, like what's being said or what could be said? I think
3: focusing on the positives, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know if you saw the research that came out of Cambridge last summer, but um, you know, they were showing that dyslexia has an evolutionary basis and that there's this importance that you know, they concluded that people with dyslexia are actually specialized in exploring the unknown and we need that to be able to continue to evolve and survive as a species. So, teaching students about all the wonderful strengths that they have about if you look at the some of the leading entrepreneurs in the world, mm-hmm. you know, they have language-based learning differences. Showing them the positives and, and is so key to building that self-esteem. And if you can build that self-esteem, then you can move forward
4: because people see each other in a positive light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I add to that? Definitely. Because <laughs> I think, you know, there's a, there's a both and to it. Um, I think where specific, specifically when I was a teacher um, and, and thinking of the research of, of strengths, I think that's really important. And I think there is an element to addressing that um, due to the, um, some of the struggles that people with dyslexia bring, especially in reading that we can't under, we we can't forget that because I think sometimes when um, people, I'm trying to think of way I can think about this. Can I just pause for a second? Cause I had a thought and then it just sort of like, Okay. So yeah. Okay. Good. So I'm going to go back to exactly what Jillie said. So I want to add the yes and to what Jillie was talking about. Um, I think the strengths piece is is very important. And the other aspect of it, however, is that we need to make sure that people understand the the difficulties and the struggles that that people with dyslexia and other reading disabilities do bring. And notice, you know, I add that yes and piece of it too, is that um, we want to approach children so they're empowering them, finding their strengths, connecting to the research that people with dyslexia um, bring a lot of different unusual unique strengths that per- perhaps someone without dyslexia didn't have, and ensuring that we're providing the systemic supports for them to be successful readers, right? You know, um, if the the supports aren't there in the way that they are supporting children to be competent, to have that agency to, and by not be competent, I mean, build the competencies and the skills and the agency to be successful readers, you know, that's also fundamental as well. So when I come about this, it really is this yes and comprehensive approach um, where you integrate a lot of those areas of, of Um, the academic environment and curriculum to support those children absolutely
3: yeah 100% agree Danielle and we're not providing enough support for the adults in these kids lives especially Mm -hmm. the the educators so unless we can help the educators understand they're not going to be able to create that environment where we can develop their skill set
1: which is kind of a perfect segue into the next question because Mm -hmm. we're talking all about the kids, and you all said context, and so that inherently means relationships, right? So there's the parent-child relationship, there's the peer-to-peer, there's the teacher-student, teacher-administrator, et cetera. So in your experience, how critical is belonging in those relationships?
4: It's everything. It's like full stop everything. I mean, I'm preparing a presentation that I'm doing, not on students with dyslexia, but just looking at resilience at large and Um, time and time again, relationships come up as being a key factor in supporting children and a lot in any of their endeavors and supporting each other. I mean, we, I love the bell hooks quote that we heal in community or we heal in connection, because I think that's something that I think about all the time where um, their, their relationships are just fundamental. And so when I think about relationships though, I'm, I'm, Constantly looking at the how. So, what are these elements of good relationships? Of what? What are what are those those pieces that we ground ourselves in empowering relationships for our children? Um, and I think I want to circle back to what Jilly said. First, is just seeing and valuing the children for who they are, and being co- steadfastly committed every day in celebrating who they are. And then, of course, meeting them with high expectations and high support um, in an environment that that really, you know, just environment that really does bridge those expectations and support for those children.
3: I think that support is so key, Danielle. And, you know, I was really surprised during my doctoral research to find that children with learning differences actually have lower satisfaction with their family
1: relationships
3: Hmm. than neurotypical children. And so helping these adults um, to really understand what our kids need is so critical. So it's almost like the support system has to be complete. And it's in so many different avenues of children's lives, where they are from school to coaches, Um, how many students struggle with communicating with their coaches because things move so fast. Um, I was talking to parents who had to provide additional supports so that their child could be successful whether it's swimming or soccer, because there is this lack of understanding. And as you mentioned earlier, Danielle, that language impacts everything. And so it really does impact their whole day. And so thinking about every single adult who is interacting with a child is really key.
1: And can belonging help to facilitate those connections or how can belonging help to facilitate those connections, do you think?
4: I think it's... Mm -hmm. It's 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 reciprocal and I feel I, I see belonging as being both an outcome and a process because as Jilly was talking about, the way that a coach or a teacher approaches a child through their language or even through implicit actions, right? Um I come up with a story, I was thinking of a story of um another educator in the field um outside of my school that was talking about um a child that was struggling to read and the teacher approached the child and said, you know, um, you know, we're learning about this growth mindset, right? All you have to do is work harder. And I thought about that and I and I and I'm like, you know, that child is working the hardest that their hardest. Their effort is not the question there. But but and, and in that one micro moment of of that language of that back and forth between that child that was a mechanism that may have turned that might have inhibited the sense of belonging right mm-hmm. um and then of course belonging could be a sort of a tool too to help continue to further um a relationship because if a child feels that sense of belonging perhaps there is some sense of um Strengthening relationships in some way, so it's it's both a process and an outcome in terms of how we approach our kids, and and I keep coming back to language. I think language does fuel that in so many ways.
2: See the irony in that, right? The out the language, and we're talking about kids that have, right, language mm-hmm. difficulties. So that, that irony is not lost on me there, which is really interesting. So we have parents and educators and leaders who listen to the podcast and so something that we love to make sure we're offering are practical strategies markers signals and so how do you know if belonging is showing up in these relationships we've just said context is important the external is critical relationships are, what did you say, um, Danielle? You're like hard stop, belonging, relationship is everything. Mm-hmm. Right? So how do you know as the individual working with this or engaging with this student with a learning difference, what's a signal that it's that it's working? And what's a signal when it's not working? Like what should we be
4: paying attention to? I guess I can start with all kids because I think one of the Ways I approach this um, in terms of, you know, just looking at kids with language based dis- uh, language- based learning disabilities like dyslexia, um, It's a facet of their identity, right? It's not their whole identity. Um, and you may have had other educators or or caregivers, parents, families on the podcast mentioning similar type themes for children who identify many other different ways. Um, the one framework I like to bring back to is, obviously we talked about relationships, but how are you fostering relationships that are um, instilling a sense of agency and confidence building? Um, how are you instilling relationships where children can learn to self-advocate? Um, Jillian, and I talked about this um, element of support And so what does support look like? And it could look differently across classrooms. It could look differently across families, Um, but there is this element of how you are um, building this element of support so that they can build confidence. And again, I'm coming back to language because when we find a time again with children, specifically children with um, language disorders, language disabilities and differences um, that Creating that language-rich environment, both cognitively and social emotionally, is is fundamental. So, um, I talked to countless researchers that talk about even with just young kids creating a language-rich environment during um, micro moments during bath time, right? Creating a sense of talking about the day um, to school-age kids, creating those micro moments where they're they are they're talking. They are. Engaging in language rich activities, um, and it could be formally and informally. Um, I don't know if that quite answers the question, but um, I really do think that you can see little pockets of it where you're creating elements of confidence and again, harnessing language to support the children.
3: 100% agree, Danielle. And you're really talking about intentionality Mm -hmm. and how you're really planning a child's day, whether it's at home or in school. Um, And I'd like to add that communication for our students isn't just through language either. So providing opportunities, whether it's be the arts, the sciences, um, presentations. I think about how many talented photographers and artists that we have, finding other ways for them to be able to communicate who they are and providing opportunities. There may be only, and I'm specifically thinking about schools here, but if you only have two students who are really into fishing, why can't they have a fishing club? (laughs) Let's find a fishing club for them, let's support them. And then when they're talking to you about fishing and they're teaching you um, what they do when they go fishing and they're they're the experts, that is gonna build that relationship. And if the school leaders are invested in that and seeing that child and their passion, they're gonna be able to develop the language. They're gonna take more academic risks and they're gonna be invested more into their school experience if they're seen and valued. as the teachers are providing this language-rich environment, which Danielle is discussing.
2: Yeah.
1: And isn't Um, that what it's all about, right? I mean, in any school, we're looking for kids to be more invested and to take academic risks. And I think it's just the supports and the conditions that differ mm -hmm. but the outcomes we're hoping for, that curiosity and that
2: learner mindset. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'm hearing, I just want to echo back to see if there's anything else to add here, just as our, our listeners think about these practical strategies, language rich environment. I love this idea of formal and informal conversations, bath time, dinner time, snack time, whatever it is playing outside, being really intentional about what you're doing. Um, Julie, I really appreciated this idea, this communication, myriad ways to communicate. I will say I did a, um, short, Um, several weeks ago, we, our son just turned 11 and so we've entered the world of technology and we decided to get him an Apple watch and I was texting with him. And what I've, this experience I've had is, um, he's a, he's a really wiggly kid. He's all over. I mean, he's, he's 11, right? So he's high energy all over the map. So when I have a face-to-face conversation with him, sometimes I, I called them, like, sometimes there's just the distractions of life, right? So it's really hard for me to focus in on his conversation because he's over here and he's over here. And when we were texting, I thought to myself, he, he's a really cool kid. Like he's a really co-. So I think I mean, I know every mom thinks that about their child. I get that. I think what I'm trying to, what I've learned and recognized is just what you said, Jillie. is like, we have to work hard and be intentional to find the different ways to communicate with our kids because they just shine in different places, right? And in different ways. And I think that's what I was discovering is like through the written word, I was seeing my son- in a really different way, which was really cool, you know? And and so I love hearing you as an expert in this field, Julie say that as a reminder that yes, it's language rich environment and that can show up in a, a multitude of opportunities and we have to hold space. You know, Danielle, I love this idea that we have to hold space. Um, and I think that's hard for like traditional K to 12 public schools, I mean, when you said, "Bran, when you said taking academic risk and being curious, that runs counter, unfortunately, to lots of traditional public schools, right? Even higher ed institutions, right? So it's it's a we're really walking this line of paradox, Danielle. It's taking me back. So <laughs>
4: <laughs> makes me so excited. Yeah. Well, I think what you said, I think to some, you know, in what I hear you saying is we need, just need to meet the children where they are. Mm-hmm. I think so often we, you know, expect a certain outcome from our children, no matter what they bring, their strengths, their difficulties, their struggles, and especially bringing back to your, your story, Carrie, about that was illuminating, you're meeting your son where he was. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think sometimes with all that we get lost in what we need to teach or how we need to teach it, like that really is at the core of it is meeting the children where they are.
1: And that sometimes takes intentionality, like what Julie was saying before about the parents that she learned, you know, through your interviews with you in your doctoral work, maybe hadn't even thought to talk with the parents that much before, but through that intentional process of interviewing and um, learning about their experiences, then you got to see, oh my gosh, this is what this looks like. And you are a parent <laughs> of kids with dyslexia, but that seems like, it just seems like you learned a lot from those intentional conversations which then allows you to meet those parents where they are, but you wouldn't have known where they were without asking.
3: Exactly. And the the consistency of stories that parents tell, I think <clears throat> is what's most concerning, that they have the mm-hmm. same stories. There may be different contexts, but it's the same stories. Um, and so being able to be with people who've had similar experiences definitely hope, helps them feel like they belong to a community and that they have people who understand them.
2: Yeah. I wonder, Jilly, in your research and, you know, Danielle, as you work, have worked with parents and other educators, one thing I was wondering about is because we started, it's so funny that you started talking about ecological systems theory, Danielle, because we can't forget the system in this because that's really at play here. And so I'm wondering, Jilly, as you were working with parents, do you think that one of the benefits of bringing the community together was essentially giving parents permission to hold that space, to be in that space, to think about, because I just feel like the system as it is, we're always rushing and pushing kids to do it this way and get it this way and get this competency and be here. And we're not giving, the system does not give us permission and is not very kind and compassionate to all the differences that show up. So I'm just wondering, did that show up in your research at all, that idea?
3: 100 percent I mean being in a non-judgmental environment was absolutely key I'd say even goes beyond school you know we have these expectations you know we were talking about college with Brianne and what a big experience that is and especially in certain parts of the country there are these expectations on parents about where your children going to be what are they doing what are they achieving and every year I talk to my families about it's okay to stop It's okay to carve out time where you're not rushing around. You have time to make those connections. And they look at me in surprise and they're like, really? And I'm like, yes, it's okay to stop Um, because we're in this go, go, go society. And we have to feel comfortable enough to look at our own families and see what we need as a unit, as a system, um, and not be so concerned about how we're fitting into all these other systems around us.
1: Mm. And to develop and honor those micro moments, right? That Danielle was talking about before. I mean, bath time for little kids, but what are those micro moments when your teenagers are scheduled to the max? You know, I mean, we talk about the car and there's some really good conversation that happens in the car between, between things, or sometimes you just don't go to a practice because you just need time. Um, But it doesn't really feel like there's
3: generally permission. Go ahead, Jill. No, I was just saying 100% this idea of stopping. Um, I think some of the best parenting advice I got with the teenager is that you need to be a potted plant and that you need to be available when your teenager wants you and you just need to be there. (laughs) I think that's definitely very apt for teenagers.
2: Yeah. I love that. I'm going to, I wrote down that metaphor. I mean, I think that's, that's all, this is what I love about this podcast. Like this is to me, this is another form and shape of belonging right? Like holding space, um, being a potted plant, being there when your kid needs you. So it doesn't always have to be this like chasing of something, this doing of something. Sometimes it's just holding space, right? And stopping and and resting. So um, yeah, I love that.
4: I do want to come back for the micro moment to the systems level because this is something that I'm really um, energized by. And I know Jilly, you're an advocate for this too, is that I wish at a systems level that we um, prepared, provided information, knowledge uh, more about dyslexia um, and a lot of another one, de- developmental language disorder. Um, the reason being that, you know, it's one in five students as a, le- a learning disability. That's one in five, right? If you're looking at a classroom, Um, I think some of the recent studies I I saw was about like two in every classroom is going to have a developmental language disorder. And still these pervasive myths exist. And, you know, it might not seem like that much of a big deal for someone who doesn't know someone with dyslexia or DLD, but chances are you do. And it not only does it need to be something that's informational, like providing what dyslexia or DLD is and isn't, but then also, arming, empowering teachers for what's going to be the ways that you can, as a classroom system and context, best support those students in your classroom. And then at an individual level, what are those things that you're doing academically, personally, social, emotionally support the child. And from what Jilly's research has shown, support the family, because the families feel just as isolated as the child does. You know, um, I've had stories of children outside and, and, and teachers sharing to me that, you know, my child failed in learning to read. And that's a hard thing to think about when your child has failed. And really, it, it, it should be a switch of the system failed the child, that there was not an appropriate support for that child to be successful in one of the first academic endeavors that they could come about. So I think I'm the, the big thing I like to think about in the systems level and what I'm really passionate about is sharing information, sharing knowledge, and disseminating advocacy efforts to ensure that more people know and truly understand um, these these children and, and from a systems level.
3: So that comment about sharing information, which is so key, reminded me of something that one of the dads said during my research. He was saying that he wished in that kindergarten meeting that you have on the first day of school where you all sit in a big hall that someone said 20% of your children are going to have difficulties reading. And if they'd normalized it at that moment in time, Mm -hmm. he said his journey as a parent would have been so different. So I love what you're saying, Danielle, about sharing information because it's almost hidden Mm -hmm. from parents and they can't find it. And it is absolutely terrifying as a parent to get that serious phone call saying your child has failed their reading test because reading is so fundamental to success in society.
1: And it sounds like it just would be a shame trigger because it's hidden like that, right? So if it was just, I mean, one in five students, that's a lot of students.
4: Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, that's two thirds, two thirds of the nation's children are not proficient in reading in fourth grade. About what is it, like 60, uh, 65% around there, not proficient readers. And so, I mean, you know, it's NAEP, it's one measure, but countless times again, you hear, I mean, I should say NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Um it's one score, but time and time again, you see the data showing up again and again and again of so many children that are just struggling to read. And as Jilly said, like, that's an important endeavor academically, personally, socially, lifelong. And so that's why I think for both of, for me, and, you know, I, I think I can see for Jilly too, why we're so passionate about this work in the sense of belonging as well, because it really does go hand in hand.
2: It's definitely. I mean, it's definitely a shame trigger, and I think going back to the system, because I agree, there's there's a huge system malfunction at play here, right? Because I think the other thing, and I think it goes back to Jilly, what you said earlier is, we pro we tend to problematize everything, right? And the, and and I see this in public schools because we have kids that are in second grade and fifth grade, and so the the sort of piece of the system that's going on here is not only is it not told. To parents and kids. But when something emerges and is sort of manifesting in the classroom, we don't have tests necessarily available. I mean, parents have to fight to have tests done. And so, what happens oftentimes, unfortunately, is kids are marked as behavioral, right? It becomes a, be- it's not so like, right? So there's, So they're noticing something, but they're calling it the thing that it's not. So, so now you've got this issue with now they think my kid's a problem and it behaviorally when actually it's a reading issue and right. So it's just interesting how it all gets confounded um, and does create an incredible shame spiral for the family and the kids and really messes with belonging a -hmm. lot. So, yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. research data to show about higher incidences of depression, of anxiety, um, whether secondary consequences or primary um, interrelated, but that the data is there to show um, higher incidences of of those types of um, social emotional consequences um, related to reading and reading disabilities and reading difficulties. So, yeah.
1: So if we take this systems view, Danielle, you had no idea that when you answered question number one today, you were like framing our whole conversation. (laughs) If we take the ecological systems idea, which is, you know, concentric circles with the focal individual at the middle, and then the circles as they go out, go kind of like immediate relationships all the way out to the, to the bigger system. So we've talked about the bigger systems and the importance of sharing information. We talked a bit about parents and teachers, let us zoom all the way in to that focal individual what is your view of belonging to
4: self so that person in the middle whoa i had prepared something earlier but now that after our conversation again i'm like tinkering and learning in every moment jillie if you have something first (laughs) i will invite you to talk about this first but great way to throw that over
3: (laughs) Okay, I answer this, I think, from a personal perspective and as a professional work in this field. Yeah, And it goes back to what Danielle was saying earlier about the um, yes and. So really helping children with language-based learning differences learn what that means, learn about the difficulties, but what how we can support them and how they can overcome those challenges or learn to live with them. I mean, it's a really exciting time you know, we all use speech to text now. We have little computers in our pockets with cell phones. It's an exciting time for dyslexics. Mm. And then also teaching them about, you know, their strengths, fueling those interests. You see a change in children when they're in a place where they're seen and they're valued and they understand themselves and their peer groups understands them. And so it's about knowing yourself, self-care, um, self-love, if we could say that, that you you feel so comfortable with who you are, as much as a teenager and a middle schooler can, I suppose. <laughs> but that that you learn to develop goals, you see the success that can be ahead of yourself. Um, you know, I hear from kids all the time. I never thought I could think about college, but now I can, mm. and that just changes their perspective on the world and what their future is going to be. So. That's quite a broad answer, but I've definitely seen it as the parent, seen as my children have learned about themselves and learned to understand their strengths and their interests and really investing in them, um, how they have gained a sense of belonging for themselves.
4: Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, I really do think, in, in adding to what Julie had said, um, truly empowering children and empowering their families and empowering educators through, um, through that yes and approach. And you know what, I, Brianne, again, I know we're moving to the self, but I cannot divorce myself from the system. It's very hard for me to say, okay, as someone who's as self, as I put myself in it, or I, I try to think about, or, you know, try to, have a sense of empathy for someone of a different experience. I'm a person that's not with who does not have a language based learning disability. I have a sister, I think I said this earlier, who does and I think about her every day. And so much of this and, you know, I want to avoid the heavy responsibility of our listeners that might hear this and saying, Oh, my gosh, I need to think about everything now, because I always think about everything I think about the systems all the time. But it really, I, I think the systems really does matter. But I also think that we as adults have an incredible power in ourselves and those micro moments in that micro intentionality to just make that child's day a little better by just um, and giving them a little self. So uh, as Jilly said, this, this belief in themselves to celebrate them just a little bit more. And I thought about it all the time when I was teaching, right? I had children that would struggle to formulate a sentence and when they just did that one thing to incorporate that sentence strategy we're working on that day or to use that new vocabulary word that I was consistently reinforcing in multiple contexts and that child used it in the way that was just so brilliant like why not use that opportunity to celebrate that child for who they are right and then again like making sure beyond where they are, that they're where where you are in that moment, that they have the right supports and the high expectations that you truly believe in them and that you're going to continue to set those high expectations with that support so that they can see themselves in college, that they can see themselves beyond in whatever they decide to do. So I again don't want to divorce from the systems, but there are so many things we can do at the micro moment to celebrate yeah.
2: that. Absolutely. Yeah, I wanna, I was thinking about Julie, your notion of this potted plant during the teenage years, and I wonder if in the younger years, you know, if we stay with that sort of metaphor, if maybe our role as adults in kids' lives is more of a gardener, right, nurturing the seeds and tending to the seed, and as they become teenagers, that that cultivation of belonging changes, that it's holding space so that we're sort of a mooring when they need to pull over and they need to check in. We're there, right? But maybe when they're younger, we're really having—we really need to be actively engaging because we're helping to build. You know, Danielle, you mentioned agency and efficacy and all of those wonderful things. And so I wonder if—I don't know—it just made me think, like maybe it's sort of like the activeness of belonging changes as our as the kids in our lives. Whether you're a a, a teacher, a parent, an aunt, whatever, however you show up for kids in your lives, maybe it changes. I don't know what I was thinking about.
1: That reminds me of what a previous guest was saying. Kate, Kate McMahon um, was talking about this idea of big B and little B belonging. So Mm -hmm. big B meaning like yourself, like you've got your roots, you're feeling strong and little B um, more like those externally driven senses of belonging. And we were, Carrie asked a great question in that interview, and it was really asking about what about children, you know, how does that manifest. And that reminded me of this idea of cultivation, like we're really active cultivators of that sense of belonging. Yeah. And it is systemic. So we like to say, you know, where is the self, but Danielle, you're right, that it all is part of the, the microsystems and then all the way out.
2: Well, I've been really interested in, I mean, one, you know, Julie, I loved your answer that was both personal and professional, which those are our favorite kinds of answers. So you can't, I can't help showing up as a mom. Right. And so I've been thinking a lot about, Belonging has to be handled and and taken in differently at different developmental stages. i just I just believe that. And I remember uh, Brene Brown saying when she went in and interviewed kids during one of her research projects, what she realized from that research is that if kids don't get belonging in school, sometimes they don't get it at all because mm-hmm. they're not this is they're not getting it at home right? So that it really does have to be an active thing because you're not born necessarily thinking that you belong, right? That, that you, that has to be cultivated and actively nurtured. And so anyway, that's a, I know we're getting a little off topic, but that's what I was thinking about when you, when you raised the idea of, I'm going to be thinking about potted plant for a while, so (laughs) I appreciate that you've given me that to think about. (laughs)
4: And there's no, you did not deviate because you mentioned Dr. Brene Brown. This would not be a podcast without just a little.
2: We got to drop her, drop her somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Every time. Yeah. 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 Well, Breanne, I feel like we've covered lots of different strategies and approaches. Um, So unless there's something you wanted to add to that, I was going to move forward to the next. Is that good with you? That's great. Yep. So in the spirit of personal and professional, Brianne and I at, love this question, which a lot of qualitative researchers use, which is, um, is there anything else either of you would like to share that we didn't cover um, in the questions or that you didn't get to in the questions? So we wanna hold some space for you to have the last word, so to speak.
4: Uh, I like how Jilly talked about intentionality I think that was a major theme when the two of us were even just thinking about this. I would also say um, belonging at large requires commitment um, from a relationship standpoint in terms of two people personally, and then just from an organizational standpoint. Um, I really like, Brianne and Carrie, how you are creating space to think about belonging and what that looks like across different experiences, and for those leaders, educators, families thinking, listening to this, I think it requires first someone to operationalize, or I like to say, humanize what that looks like in in their own context, and then that commitment to it. So if they are going to be operationalizing it, being clear about what that means, and following through with it, I think that's really important, um, just for at large. And you know what's so funny is I said that it my idea of belonging changed from the last time you interviewed me to, to this interview, it's changed in the course of this interview. So <laughs> I appreciate not so much change, but maybe even fleshed out a little bit more. So that's, that's, that's where I'm at right now.
2: Awesome. Jilly, any last words? I think
3: just emphasizing the power of a child's voice. I think as adults, I mean we make a lot of assumptions about what a child is thinking and feeling. And if you really want to know, if you really want to connect, you need to talk to them, ask them about their thoughts, what they need, what they want changed, lots of choice in academics so that they can feel connected. So I would just encourage our listeners to just go to the source, Mm. speak to the child. They will tell you what they need.
2: Mm. No better way to humanize belonging than to go to the source. Mm -hmm the power of the child's voice we we adults need to get out of our own way and just talk to the kids right that's really hmm. i'm not going to say anything else because that's such a good good way to end it so i will i will end um where danielle began which is with much gratitude um for us being able to finally schedule some time and hold space for this um dare I say, beautiful conversation. I love getting together with with folks and learning and listening and asking questions. So thanks to all of you for agreeing to be on the pod today. It was a pleasure to have this conversation.
4: Thank you for having us. Much gratitude to the three of you. Thank you.
2: Absolutely. All right, everybody. Well, this has been another episode of Tell Me This. I am your co-host, Carrie Bukowski, here with Dr. Brianne Ruth. And thank you for Shows up your
1: last year Some they say.